Turn your Bibles to Matthew 11. You know, when you get a book, the first thing you're going to look at on the book is the title, right? And every sermon's kind of like a book, and every sermon has a title. I'm going to start with my title this morning. I want to give it to you, and then I'm going to kind of unpack it. I'm going to, I'm going to exposit the, the title this morning. God's Sovereignty Over Salvation. God's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are triune God's sovereignty over salvation. For each member of the Godhead is essential and integral in the work of salvation from planning to execution to application. God's sovereignty over salvation, not man's sovereignty over salvation. Sovereignty. A thesaurus, it's hard to say, but it's very useful, says this about sovereignty. Dominion, rule, power, control, authority, and autonomy, freedom or self-determination. We're talking about God's dominion over salvation, God's control over salvation, God's freedom and self-determination over salvation. Over salvation. God's rescue of sinners through Christ from the consequences of our sin. And he does this through faith in Jesus as Messiah, anointed one. Through faith in the words and the works and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he revealed the Father By His words and His works and His person. And He revealed the Father to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. God's sovereignty over salvation. Now let's read the text. Matthew 11, 25-27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, And have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Bow with me for a short prayer. Father, what a weighty, glorious, beautiful text of Scripture this is. I pray that you'd give me help in preaching and teaching it. And I pray you'd give my friends and my brothers and sisters here help in understanding and believing and responding. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me show you some key observations of this text as we begin this morning. There would probably be a hundred observations, but I want to give you the most important ones. Father here, God the Father, is mentioned or referred to in these few verses ten times. The Son, six times. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus is talking to God. In verse 27, He's talking to man. Very important that we see that. He will move from, notice, these things... In verse 25, to all things in verse 27. 
And I want you to notice that in these three verses, there are no commands. We're not told to do anything. There are no promises or warnings. There are no exhortations or illustrations. What is here is all action and all assertion. And that will actually provide the breakdown of the sermon. Now, there's an amazing setting to this that we simply cannot miss. Look at verse 25. Look at how it begins. At that time. And so we would ask what? What time? (laughs) At what time? And it was the immediate context. If we go back in the in the context, it was at the time that Jesus denounced unrepentant cities. Verses 20 to 24. It was at that time when Jesus is condemning these unrepentant unbelievers for not responding to his miracles. It was at that very time that Jesus then turns right around and praises God. I mean, only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can go in one moment from denouncing to the very next moment into praising. That's the amazing setting. And in fact, there's something the translators left out here. Literally, it says, at that time, Jesus answered and said. And they leave out answered. And that's uh, uh, unfortunate, really. Because when it says that Jesus answered and said, the implication there is that Jesus is responding. Now, there's no question previous to this in the text. So what is he responding to? He is responding to rejection. How is he going to respond to rejection of himself as Messiah? By praising his father for being sovereign over that rejection. The setting opens up the meaning of this text. This is how Jesus processes the fact that people hate him. This is how Jesus theologically reasons through that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are unrepentant. This is how Jesus comforts himself on the fact that John the Baptist, his cousin and his forerunner, has been arrested and is in jail and is about to be killed for being the forerunner of the Messiah and for speaking the truth. And so Jesus here is going to draw comfort and strength from who God is over the very rejection that he is experiencing. It was at that time that he praised God. Luke even highlights this further in the parallel passage. Luke's passage says, At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This would be like Noah and his family singing, Oh, worship the King as the waters rose. This is an amazing insight into the depths of Christ's soul here as he goes from denouncing to worship in a split second. That brings us to the text idea this morning. After messianic claims in face of rejection and after condemning unrepentant cities in Galilee, that's Matthew 11, Jesus here asserted the sovereignty of God over the salvation of man. Jesus asserted the the sovereignty of God over the salvation of man. Assert means to state a belief boldly and forcefully. And it is really just the right word for what Jesus is doing here in these few verses. 
And that brings us to the sermon idea, the big idea this morning of the sermon. This text asserts the sovereignty of God over the salvation of man. Now, let me say it even more precisely with the context. This passage asserts the sovereignty of God over man's perception of Jesus as Messiah. This text asserts the sovereignty of God over our understanding, over our ability to see that Jesus is who he claims to be. My purpose this morning is to convince you and to persuade you of God's sovereignty over your salvation so that you praise him and tell others. So that just like Jesus, you praise him and just like Jesus, you tell others confidently and boldly. So here's your outline. Jesus affirms the sovereignty of God over the salvation of man in two distinct ways. Number one, by praising the Father's sovereignty over salvation. That's verses 25 and 26. And number two, by asserting the Son's sovereignty over salvation. That's verse 27. This passage breaks down so beautifully and so uh, clearly in that way. So let's begin then with how he is going to praise the Father's sovereignty over salvation in verses 25 and 26. I told you here he is speaking to God. His father. And he says to him there, I praise you. That could also be translated, I thank you. I praise you, Father. And then he adds these words. He didn't have to add them, but they're very important to what he's doing here. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I praise you, Father, Lord of the universe, because heaven and earth is all that there is. Heaven and heaven is the is everything outside the earth. It's every planet, every star, every galaxy. It's the entire universe. And God the Father is Lord over it. And he's Lord over the earth and everything on the earth and everything that goes on on the earth. And he says, I thank you that you are this way, that you are the sovereign. And here Jesus is saying, Lord, you're not just Lord of heaven and earth. You're Lord of how people are responding to me. You're Lord of how people are treating me. We have to always remember Jesus is fully God and fully what? Man. He is fully human. He had feelings. He had a heart. He had a human heart, a human soul, a human will. He had human emotions. He has come filled with love for his people. He is offering them himself in his kingdom and they're spitting in his face. They are slapping him and they literally will later. And he knows this is coming. And so there's a side of this where his heart is broken, right? We know that later on in his ministry, he will weep over Jerusalem. We know that their rejection breaks his heart. And so we know that humanly speaking, like us, he has to draw comfort and strength from the truth. He has to draw draw comfort and strength from theology. And that's what he is doing here. You are Lord of how people treat me. Nothing happens to me that you're not sovereign over because you're the sovereign over the universe and every detail in it. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things. I want to talk about these things before we get into the details here. Because we must define what he's talking about there. You have hidden these things from the wise intelligent. And you have revealed these things implied to infants. What are these things? Well, obviously in the context, he's speaking of 
the revelation of himself as Messiah. He's speaking of his words and his works and their significance, how he reveals the father, how he has come as king, how he has come with this offer of the kingdom. He is talking about here the things of salvation then. He is talking about the things of Christ and the things of his reign and rule. These things means the knowledge of Jesus as Messiah. And he says, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things. You've hidden these things of salvation from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So the action of verse 25 is praise. And the action of verse 26 is praise. But Jesus gives three reasons here for why he's praising the Father. And I want you to see if you see them. I want you to look and see if you can find them. Three reasons why he's praising the Father in verse 25 and 26. Because after this sermon is over, and later today or on Wednesday afternoon, I want you to be able to go back to this text and remember that what you heard from the sermon came from the text and not from the preacher's opinion. So if you can look at the words now and see what I see, then you will remember them. There are three reasons for this praise of the Father's sovereignty over salvation. Number one, because you have concealed salvation from the clever. Number two, because you have revealed salvation to the childlike. And number three, because your concealing and revealing gives you pleasure. These are the three reasons then Jesus is praising the Father in verse 25. Let's break them down. Number one, because you have concealed salvation from the clever. Now, obviously, this is sarcasm. And those of you, like me, with the gift of sarcasm, readily notice that. (laughs) When he calls them the wise and the intelligent, he means they're wise and intelligent in their own eyes, not in God's eyes. This is mockery of their wisdom and their intelligence. This is sarcasm. And so when God here covers or conceals or hides or keeps secret the things of salvation, he's doing so from the proud. He's doing so from the wise and the intelligent. He's doing so from know-it-alls, from people who can't be taught, who can't be told anything because they know everything already. They're the wise and the intelligent. They're the spiritual aristocracy of the day. These are the people who refuse to repent, you see. And he's saying, I praise you, Father, because you're concealing the things of Christ and the things of salvation from the clever. These would be the indifferent people in Bethsaida and Chorazin that we talked about last week. This would be the arrogant people in Capernaum. Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? This would be the religious aristocracy of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees who had it all figured out. This would really be the majority of the whole nation of Israel. All of the people of of his own race and his own nation would be characterized as the wise and the intelligent. And this is not the first time God has done something like this or talked about doing something like this. Everything Jesus teaches is really ultimately rooted in the Old Testament, and so is this. So go with me to Isaiah 29 for a key cross-reference to this wise and intelligence terminology. It's Isaiah chapter 29 in verse 13.
Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed, covered, hidden. Paul would pick up on this very language of Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You remember he talks about the wise and the intelligence in 1 Corinthians. He picks up on this terminology and this phrase in 119 and he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So that's the first reason that Jesus is praising the Father's sovereignty and salvation. is because He's concealing, He's covering, He's hiding from the wise and the intelligence. He goes on though, there's a second reason. Because you have revealed the things of salvation to the childlike, to the infant. Here the idea of revealed is to disclose something, to uncover something that was hidden. To, to bring to light something that wasn't previously seen. It may have been there all along, but all of a sudden somebody uncovers it and now you can see it. You see, and he says he does this. You have revealed them to infants. By infant, he doesn't mean literal infant or literal children here. He means the dependent. He means the humble in contrast to the proud. He means the childlike in contrast to the intelligentsia. In Matthew 18, 3, Jesus will say, unless you are converted and become like children... You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted and become like children, meaning teachable, humble, dependent, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in chapter 10, he referred to the disciples now as little ones. Same word here as infant. And so they're really now in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees. You've got the people that think they know it all and they really know nothing. And you've got these disciples over here, these humble fishermen and others who know they don't really know much at all, but they actually are learning a lot. Right? And and so he's really here, when he says infants, he's really referring immediately to the twelve. These little ones. Now there's a great example of this revealing. That God the Father does in the context of salvation, in the context of my eyes have been opened to who Jesus Christ truly is. There's a great illustration of this just five chapters ahead. Go to chapter 16. There's a great example of a particular infant who would speak for the rest of the infants. (laughs) in, In every group, there's a leader. Even in the... Even in the daycare, right? Even in the nursery. And so we think of the 12 as the nursery. And they've got their leader. And Jesus pulls them aside one day off in the wilderness. Off in a very remote spot. And he pulls them aside in Matthew 16. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. 
verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, man, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's your word reveal. Peter, you didn't come to this because you are so intuitive, because you are so smart, because you've been paying attention, because we know Peter wasn't often paying attention. (laughs) And in fact, Peter's about to get severely rebuked. He's going to stumble badly in just mere seconds. How did you come to know that I am the anointed one, the son of the living God? Because my father revealed this to you, Peter. Back to our text, he began with praise. I praise you, Father. Verse 26 is a continuation of this praise. When we see something we really like, we say, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the ball goes in, the, the, the touchdown happens, the, 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 the good report comes back from the doctor. This is what's going on in verse 26. It's just more praise. Yes, Father. He abbreviates The previous statement, yes, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Four, third reason now, for this was well-pleasing in your sight, or literally thus was of your good pleasure. The word well-pleasing here is the only time in the book of Matthew. The third reason now, this, oh, go with me here, folks. So you thought we were deep already? Go with me to this deep place. The third reason Jesus is praising the Father is because His act of concealing and revealing brings Him pleasure. It is His good pleasure to do so. It is well-pleasing in His sight, Jesus says. So it's not just that God is pleased with concealing... And it's not just that God is pleased with revealing. It's that He's pleased with both and He's pleased equally here with both. They both bring Him pleasure. So how do I understand this? It's not very complicated. When God conceals from the wise and the intelligence, that is justice. That is exactly what they deserve. Nothing more and nothing less. The act of concealing here is a judicial hardening and a judicial covering of the truth about Christ for those whose hearts are hard. This is justice. And justice is well-pleasing to God, is it not? God loves justice. God loves truth. God loves right. Revealing, on the other hand, is grace. Concealing is justice. Revealing is grace. And everybody gets one or the other. There is no injustice with God. There is only justice or grace. And here the revealing is grace. And Jesus says, grace is well-pleasing to God. God loves grace. He loves mercy. He loves love. He loves kindness. He loves it when people forgive each other. 
So what Jesus is doing here and these three reasons for praising the Father is this. God, not man, determines who gets justice and who gets grace. And Jesus praises God because of this sovereign determination. Jesus here is praising God for his sovereign, controlling, free will determination of who gets grace and who gets justice. We can go one step deeper even. What we learn here is that God's own actions are well-pleasing to God. God loves himself and he loves everything he does. Just like in creation, day one, day two, all the way through. And it was good and it was good and it was good. And God is showing off to the angels what He can speak into existence. And we come to the church, we come to salvation, and the same pattern is happening. God is showing off to the angels what He can speak into reality, and that is our salvation. God's own actions are well-pleasing to God, and therefore they are worthy of praise and worthy of worship. Everything God does is worthy of worship. Everything God says is worthy of praise because it came from God. And God feels that way about God. (laughs) So to sum it up, God's sovereignty lies mysteriously beneath man's response. And it does so without removing responsibility from the rejectors or making robots of the receivers. God's sovereignty lies mysteriously beneath man's response to who Jesus is. And it does so in such a way that it never, ever diminishes the responsibility and the culpability of those who reject Jesus and get justice. Or it does so in such a way that it does not ever make a robot of those who receive Jesus by God's grace. And therein lies the mystery. Now, this is a weighty doctrine. Some of you may be hearing about it for the first time in your life. Others, uh, maybe you've wrestled with this for years and years and years. This issue of God's sovereignty over man's salvation. And so this is one of those truths, one of those texts that I feel compelled to spend a few more minutes supporting biblically. And so I want to call uh, two or three witnesses. Uh, to the stand. And so let's go first to the witness of John in John chapter 6. <clears throat> and I really restricted my cross references now this morning to cross references that particularly tie into this idea of revealing. So I'm not going to go cross referencing election and predestination and foreknowledge and all of that, okay? We're not going to go there because that's not what our text is about. Our text is about either concealing it or revealing it, all right? And so those are the passages that I want to look at as far as the cross reference. So the first one is John chapter 6 and verses 44 and 45. Similar context, Jesus is talking to unbelieving Jews here. They're grumbling in verse 41 about him. It's an evangelistic context. It's a confrontational context in John 6. And in verse 44, he says to this crowd of predominantly unbelievers at this point, he says to them, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. And so he's looking right into the faces of people, right into their eyes, and he's basically saying to them, you cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you to me. And that word draw is a very strong word. It means to drag. It's the same word used when Peter drug the, the net full of fish up on the shore. <laughs> Dragging something against resistance. And Jesus says, those who are drawn, look how the verse ends. Those who are drawn, I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, he got saved <laughs> and he got kept and he's raised up on the last day to glory. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets. Okay, once again, this is not new with Jesus. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. And now he interprets everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. See it? Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. The next witness I want to call is Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Because on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. And beginning in verse 14, where Paul is dealing with this very topic throughout Romans 9. The very topic of God's sovereignty over man's salvation. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? He's anticipating the questions and the objections that we will have to this truth because it's a hard truth. It's a heavy truth. And our objection is it's not fair. Our objection is there's injustice with God. How can God be fair if he picks and chooses who's saved? So Paul takes up that issue. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Injustice is impossible. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is the next verse, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on your will and it doesn't depend on your effort. It depends on God and his will and his effort. It is referring to salvation. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul anticipates that someone right now in their heart is going, I object. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can he still punish people for their sins? How can he still find fault? For who resists his will? It's a rhetorical question. No one, no one can resist his will. He's God. On the contrary, Who are you, O man? Who are you, O creature? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called. Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This is the great biblical illustration of what we're talking about. It goes all the way back to Isaiah. It's the illustration of the potter and the clay. And the potter sits down to the wheel with a lump of clay that is soft. And he decides and he wills and he determines what he's going to make out of that lump of clay. And the potter is the one putting the hands upon it and doing with it whatever he so will. That's Isaiah's illustration. Paul picks up on it in, in Romans 9. I call one more witness to the stand. It's Ephesians chapter 1. And this is probably the best cross-reference because all of the same words are here as our passage in Matthew. And I want to just show you two verses in Ephesians 1. We've already read it this morning, but I want to just go back to verse 8 and verse 9. And it's really the second part of verse 8. Okay, so after he talked about election and predestination and being chosen and and then redemption in verse 7, now he's going to move into the idea of revelation. How do we come to understand this? How do we come to know this? Look at 8, the second part. In all wisdom and insight, he, God the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will. There's the revelation, right? He made it known to us. But we keep going. Why did he do it? According to his, what does it say? Kind intention. This is the same word Matthew used. The only time he used it, good pleasure. Same word. God made known to us the mystery of his will. This is the mystery of his will in salvation. According to, based upon his good will, his good pleasure, his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ. So there's my uh, support from uh, the rest of some of the rest of Scripture. Now let's go back to Matthew 11. Let me apply this before we move on to our second point. What do we do with this truth this morning? Well, it's not real hard to figure out, is it? Let's join Jesus and let's praise the Father for our salvation. Let's praise the Father for His sovereignty over our salvation. So that's application number one. Join Jesus in praising God over your salvation. In fact, I would say to you, pray this exact prayer. Praise this exact praise. You can put these very words into your mouth and every one of them be true. You can say, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for thus was well-pleasing in your sight. So let's join him in adoration and worship, not embarrassment, not confusion, not resistance, not... This isn't right. Not this isn't fair. Ditch that stuff and praise the Father for His sovereign work of salvation in your life. Because if He didn't do it, you would not be saved. You would be as lost as you were the day before coming to Christ. 
In, in Luke chapter 10, in the parallel passage of this, immediately after Jesus says everything that he says here in our passage, he turns to the disciples, and the text says he turned to the disciples privately, and he turns to these 12 men and he says to them, how blessed you are to see what you see and to hear what you hear. He says, kings and prophets long to see what you see and hear what you hear. We need to praise God. This is what Paul did in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to bless Him for we see what we see because we hear what we hear because we know what we know. Because God in the mystery of His will revealed it to us. So that's application number one. Application number two is closely related, and I've already alluded to it. We need to join Jesus in finding comfort in the sovereignty of God over salvation. We need to join Jesus in finding comfort and strength from this truth. Now, follow me now, in light of rejection. So you have family members that you're praying for, that you've shared with, that you're witnessing to, that your heart is broken for, and they're rejecting you right now, and they're rejecting Christ right now. You need to find comfort and strength just like Jesus did from this truth. Because he said this in, in the face of his own rejection. We have signs right now in our society of societal rejection. We've known it's been there for a long time, but it's really, really coming to the surface. We've got a national rejection of God, a national and societal rejection of authority. And it's playing out before our eyes in staggering ways and alarming ways. And we need to go back to this truth and we need to draw comfort and strength that God is sovereign over what's happening in America. God is sovereign over what's happening in our cities. This is not random. This is not faith. This is not out of control. The devil is not in control. God is God and God is in control. And I'm going to draw comfort from the fact that he will hide his truth from whomever he wants and he will reveal it to whomever he wants and he'll do so whenever he wants. And when he does so, he will be successful because he's God and he never fails and his will cannot be thwarted. His will cannot be thwarted. Who can resist his will? No one. And so I rejoice in this and I'm comforted in this and I, and I step back and I say, well, this is just a sign of the end. Uh, this is a, this is the way it's going to look at the end of time. The darkness gets even darker. I look at this, at what's going on, and I say, well, there's Romans 1 playing out before our very eyes. The Bible has already described this to us. I don't need to be in a state of fear or alarm. So find the comfort that Jesus... Hey, look, a disciple is not above his teacher. If Jesus found comfort and strength from these truths, then we must as well. You're not better than Jesus. You're not stronger than Jesus. You're not different from Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher. And so I follow his example in both praising God and being comforted by these truths. That's what they're for. All right, second reason, uh, or the second way that Jesus affirms the sovereignty of God over man's response is verse 27. So we go from his praising the Father for his sovereignty to the Son now asserting his sovereignty. Let me read it again because it's... It's been a while. All right. (laughs) All things have been handed over to me by my father. Now, Jesus is talking to people now. He's making assertions now. And no one knows the son except the father. 
Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In verse 25, the Father was doing the revealing, and now in verse 27, the Son is doing the revealing. Jesus speaks here to people. He does so with four rapid-fire assertions. Can you identify them? Can you find them? Four rapid-fire assertions of His own sovereignty over salvation, of His own control over the response of people, of His own control over whether we understand who He is or not. Number one, the Son shares the Father's sovereignty over all things. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me. All things is all things. (laughs) The Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of the universe has handed over all things to the Son. And all things here includes these things of verse 25. Handed over means entrusted, committed, or delegated. This is mom handing over the baby to the nursery workers. This is dad handing over the car keys to the 16-year-old for his first solo drive. Entrusted, committed, delegated, handed over. This is the Lord of the universe handing over the keys to the universe. All things have been handed over. This Sounds like something coming in Matthew when Jesus will say all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty eight eighteen. This is God the Father signing over the title deed to every square inch of the universe. John three thirty five says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 3.35 tells us why God did it. Because He loves the Son. John 17.2 says, Even as you gave Him authority, Jesus is speaking, He says, Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given Him, He may give eternal life. John 17.2 The second assertion is this, Only the Father knows the Son. Only the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No here means knows perfectly, knows fully, knows exhaustively, knows completely, knows through and through. Jesus is here giving us insight into His relationship with the Father for all eternity. He is known, He is loved, and they have a a uniqueness and an intimacy that no one can share. No one knows the Father except No one knows the Son except the Father. Now think about the context of of, uh, when he said this. Okay, You unrepentant cities that he denounced, you don't know me at all. You disciples, you truly know me, but barely. But my Father, he knows me exhaustively. He knows me intimately. He knows me fully. And then the flip side is true. Number three assertion. Only the Son knows the Father. By the way, here is a great claim to the deity of Christ. 
He says only the son knows the father. Well, God, the father is obviously God and God is infinite and God is eternal and God is beyond mere human comprehension. And so Jesus is saying, I know the father exactly. I know him exhaustively. I know him completely. I know him fully. You have to be God to know God to that degree. Only God can fully know himself. This is a fullness of knowledge then that we never, ever, ever share even in eternity. John seven twenty nine. Jesus says, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. You see, there's a there's an area there we will never enter into. I'm from him and he sent me. And yet, because of what comes next, we have to say that this knowledge that he speaks of in verse 27 We have to say that even though we can't know God and Christ fully and exhaustively, we can know them truly. Right? We can have a saving knowledge of God and a saving knowledge of Christ. And that's where he ends up with this amazing final assertion in verse 27. So 27 has four assertions, and each assertion is asserting the sovereignty of the Son over salvation. And this fourth one is kind of the climax. It's kind of the bam at the top. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Number four is this. The Son controls access to the Father. The Son controls access to the Father. Now just stay with me just a couple of more moments. Because all things are handed over to the Son, verse 27, and all things means all things. And because the Son and the Father have one divine will, they're in perfect unity. They do not work in cross purposes. They don't ever work against each other. Because they are in perfect cohort, the Father then lets the Son determine to whom... He will reveal salvation. The father gives him the keys and says, son, I'm going to let you decide who is saved. I'm going to let you decide who understands. I'm going to let you decide whose eyes are open. I'm going to let you decide to whom we reveal these truths. What this tells us then, listen, Jesus is both the gateway to the father and the gatekeeper. He is the gateway. He opened the door to paradise. And now he stands at the door and guards it. And he determines who comes in. He is gateway and gatekeeper. His cross and his resurrection opened the door. And now he guards the door. We could say it this way. Access was accomplished at Calvary in the empty tomb. But access is granted to whom he determines. And these people are later described, in fact, in the very next verse, (laughs) as the weary and heavy laden who come to him. So the sovereignty of the Father is praised. The sovereignty of the Son over salvation is asserted. And that's where we will stop. And I have this final application for you. It's not enough to praise God for His sovereignty over your salvation. You must also tell others. Jesus does both. Jesus is our model here. He praises and then He asserts. He confidently tells others the truth. And this is a model for us. 
If we truly believe this, if we truly understand this, if it has truly touched our hearts and moved us, we should tell others, especially other Christians. We should become a Pied Piper for the truth of salvation, especially among our brothers and sisters. On February 14, 1986, I was a 20-year-old, blind, stupid, ignorant, and helpless sinner deserving hell. I was deaf, dense, and dead in my sins. I was wrong, and I was rebellious. I was wrong about God. I was wrong about Christ. I was wrong about my own life and my own sin. And I was living in outward rebellion against God. And for reasons beyond my understanding and for reasons beyond my comprehension, on February 15th, God revealed Jesus to me. And Jesus agreed to let me come to Him. Jesus received me. Jesus met me with open arms. And He did so not because I was smart and finally figured it out. And not because I was a good person and deserved it. No one is and no one does. And not because God believed in me and saw potential. God does not believe in me. God believes in Himself. And He calls me to believe in Him. He calls me to get my eyes off of myself and put all of my trust on Him as God. And in that light, I want to close with one more passage of Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord.